good morning, everybody. It's good to see you here on this beautiful Sunday morning, wonderful weekend weather. Uh, it's just good to be here. The only thing that could be better is having this worship experience outside in the weather. That's the only thing that would make it better. Hey, I want to continue with this uh, series, Asking for a Friend. I'm going to tell you right now, I'm going to extend it till next week because I just can't get it all in. Uh, I tried, and I, I know I was on fast pace last week trying to get it all in, and I just, I'm going to have to bleed over into Better Marriage Sunday next week to finish this up. But since we're talking about some tough questions, asking for a friend, uh, and I'm going to be answering some tough questions, and I'll use the Bible as the basis for my answers, I should probably answer the question, can I trust the Bible? Or has... Hasn't science disproven the Bible? We're going to talk about that. But before we get into that, there are three types of people that may be here today. And one is you don't need uh, a reminder or a proof of, to put your faith in the Bible. You trust the Bible. You believe in the Bible. You, your faith is settled. You believe the word of God. You believe it's the inspired word of God. You don't need that. Uh, but there's, there may be some others that maybe your faith is a little shakier. And maybe you need some confidence that you can trust the Bible for the answers to our questions, that it is the foundation of our, that it is the word of God, uh, the infallible word of God. And then we all need this to be able to defend our faith because one of the, I think one of the bigger problems in church today is the fact that we're just afraid to tell people about Christ. We're afraid to evangelize. We're afraid to witness. We're afraid to get into a discussion or even debate because we just feel like we don't have the answers. So this is going to help give some answers. It might be a little heavy uh, at the beginning, but I want you to have the information that is necessary for you to be able to defend your faith and to have a, a strong foundation for why you put your faith in the word of God. Uh, so first of all, let me just talk about the seven reasons why we can trust the Bible. Again, this part maybe should be a little heavy, but you can kind of hopefully reframe the wording in your own words. But seven reasons why we can trust the Bible. And then I'll get into the passage, our text for today. But number one is internal consistency. And when, I'm, when I say internal consistency, here's what I mean by that. The Bible contains 66 books from Genesis to Revelation, uh, written by over 40 different authors, three different languages, Hebrew, Aramaic, and Greek over the course of 1,500 years. And what that, the, the theme through all of these books over 1,500 years, 40 different authors, three different languages, together all the books in the Bible paint a consistent and clear picture of the gospel of Jesus Christ. 40 authors, 1,500 years. If I were to ask 40 different people today, here in this present day, who all speak the same language, to be able to write down their views on God, what's the problem with humanity, and what do they think the answers to the problem with humanity is, I couldn't get 40 people to agree on anything. You couldn't either, because everybody's going to have a different slant, a different view, yet we have this internal consistency in the Word of God that 40 different authors over 1,500 years, three different languages, all are saying the same thing. God created men and women. We sinned against God and man, but God made a way for the restoration of us to have right relationship with Jesus Christ through his grace and his mercy. The second reason why you can trust the Bible is manuscript reliability. 
these documents that we call the Bible. We base our knowledge on world history, on the writings of others who have gone before, and ordinarily we'll base conclusive evidence on just a few manuscripts, maybe just a a handful of manuscripts, and that determines what history is. But we have over 5,000 full or partial manuscripts of the Greek New Testament, and more manuscripts are found every year through archaeological discoveries in the Holy Land, but none of those have ever resulted in a major revision, making the Bible by far the most reliably attested writing in history. Number three, historical accuracy. Historical accuracy. Over and over and over again, the Bible has been proven historically, geographically, archaeologically accurate. One non-Christian, non-Jewish archaeologist said this, said it may be stated categorically that no archaeological discovery has ever controverted a biblical reference, has ever contrasted, ever opposed a biblical reference. They always confirm the biblical references. So number four, now the last three are my favorite. Number four is fulfilled prophecy. So for all of you analytics, you mathematicians, you statisticians, you numbers people. How many of you? That's you. You're the numbers person. Yeah, you want, you want facts. You want, you want it concrete. There are over 300 references to Jesus, the Messiah, in the Old Testament alone that were fulfilled by Jesus Christ. Now, a study was done and took 48 of those 300. And using just 48 of the 300 that were selected, the probability of one person fulfilling all 48 was calculated to be one chance in 13 trillion. That's just 48 out of the 300. And several other calculations, they've been performed by different individuals. They all conclude that math, it is mathematically impossible that one person could fulfill all of these prophecies by chance. So the mathematics point to the fact that someone had to guide history over the last 4,000 years, and we believe that God, as revealed in the Bible, is the only logical choice. Now, number five is eyewitness testimony. People were writing down what they saw as it was happening in real time. So others who were present could have easily disputed those claims, yet they didn't, meaning they must have agreed with it. But you got to keep in mind that those who wrote what was happening in the Bible, many of them were martyred. Many of them were persecuted because of what they wrote, but they wrote it anyway. Most people, if they didn't believe in what they were writing, would have recanted their story and backed out to avoid being killed, martyred, persecuted. And number six, timeless authority. Century after century after century, the Bible has shown to be our guiding light its authority, its, its authority has been attacked. Its authority has been questioned. Its authority has been criticized. It's been disputed. It's been denied in every age, yet it still remains. In fact, the French philosopher and atheist Voltaire, he said this, 100 years from now, the Bible will be a forgotten book. Ha. He's the one who's forgotten, and the Bible still remains. Uh, but here's the last reason why we should believe that the Bible is true. We can trust in the Bible. Supernatural authenticity. It's probably the most important of the seven reasons because the Bible being written by 40 different authors over 1,500 years, they were inspired. The scriptures tell us they were inspired by the Holy Spirit. And so throughout history, in every age where the Bible has gone, it has supernaturally 
changed lives. In every country, it has changed lives. Century after century, it has brought joy. It has brought life eternal to those who open it, read it, and put their life upon it, and bank their life upon it. The Word of God, you can trust it. Everybody say, I can trust the Word of God. You can trust the Word of God. So before we drill down into any other questions, let me, let me set up this message by saying there are, there are three realities about people that we have to acknowledge. And one is this, that everyone has a belief system. We all have a belief system. You can say you don't have a belief system, but we all have a belief system. Everyone believes certain things about God, about life, about the future, about what it means to be human. That doesn't mean that our belief system is correct. It doesn't even mean that our belief system is totally coherent. It just means that everyone, whether they realize it or not, is guided by a set of beliefs that they have chosen to adopt, every one of us in this room. Here's the second reality. Not every belief system is right. Just because you believe something doesn't make it right. We live in a world today that say, well, that's true for you, but that's not my truth. Well, that can't be true. We can't have two different truths that oppose each other. Why? Because truth has to correspond with reality. And that's what makes truth different than a wish. Now, I, I wish Oreos didn't have calories. But that's just a wish, albeit a really, really good wish. But it doesn't correspond to reality. And so just saying that it's true or claiming that it's my truth doesn't make it any more true. Do you hear what I'm saying? So not every belief system is right. But here's the third thing. Our belief system, it influences our choices. What you have chosen to believe, it will influence your choices in life. It'll, it'll influence every aspect about our life, about reality, about what's best. It's all defined by our worldview. In fact, I was, I was uh, intrigued by something that happened in the news this last week. New speaker of the house, Mike Johnson, was asked about his worldview. And he made it really, he said, oh, just open the Bible. That's my worldview. I thought, yes. That's my worldview. The Bible, whatever the Bible says. Now, he was mocked by the left because that's what he said his worldview is. Because people have a... Uh, they have their belief system and what they think the Word of God says. But the Bible, his worldview, that's my worldview. So I, I want to talk to you a little bit this morning about, and, and this, this will be a little, as I said, a little heavy, maybe a little uh, lecture style more than just preaching a message. But there's a question that we all will get around the office, the water cooler, at lunchtime, or your first year in college. And it's a question that people ask to be able to dismiss the idea of God because they believe that science and faith are at odds with each other. And they'll, they'll say things like, hasn't science disproven God or hasn't science disproven the Bible? And the reality is that this argument usually has very little to do with science and more to do with God not doing for that person what they expected God to do. And I'll kind of unfold that, unpack that, because I want you to get that. So the reality of the question, you know, hasn't science disproven God or uh, science and faith don't work together? You've got to choose one or the other. It has very little to do with science and more to do with God not doing for the person what they thought God should do. That's why it's really hard to find 
a real true atheist. I'm not saying that there aren't real true atheists. I'm just saying they're hard to find. But what I've found is plenty of people who were so angry at God, they were angry enough to claim that he didn't exist and to rail against anything that's connected to God. I've met a lot of those. So let's explore a passage in Romans chapter one, where Paul talks about God's attributes that are clearly seen. Now, people can ignore them. People can dismiss them. People can pretend they, but God's word says, and again, this is my basis for my worldview. So I unapologetically will stand on the word of God. But Paul, who was not always a Christian, used to kill Christians until he had an experience with Jesus that changed his whole life and his life was transformed. He writes a letter to these Christians that were living in the city of Rome, and he lays out this framework of conversation with people who don't believe. And so the goal of us when we have conversations is to be able to explore the, the rationality of faith and how faith and science can live in harmony, can encourage one another, can inform one another. Romans chapter one, look at verse number 16. It says, for I'm not ashamed of the gospel because it's the power of God that brings salvation to everyone who believes. First to the Jew, then to the Gentile. For in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed. A righteousness that is by faith from first to last, just as it is written, the righteous will live by faith. The wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all godlessness and wickedness of people who suppress the truth by their wickedness. Romans 1.19, since what may be known about God is plain to them because God has made it plain to them. Verse 20, for since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power, divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made so that people are without excuse. For although they knew God, they neither glorified him as God nor gave thanks to him, but their thinking became futile and their foolish hearts were darkened. Now, according to this passage from the Apostle Paul, who was a very devout non-believer, before he was converted, says there's plenty of truth. There's plenty of facts. There's plenty of science to believe, but people suppress the truth because of their own wickedness or because of their own desires. A perfect example of that in our world today that is probably most predominant everywhere is the transgenderism contagion that's being presented as scientifically and biologically factual. So what it's saying is that one can be born with a certain set of chromosomes and a certain set of genitalia, but choose to express themselves differently. That's suppressing truth. Now, I know there's going to be good argument on both sides, but listen, if an adult wants to do that, here's my position. If an adult wants to do that, that's fine. That's fine. You're grown. You got a free will. You can do what you want. But we shouldn't pretend as a society that it's acceptable behavior because And we certainly shouldn't encourage young people who we don't let drink until they're 21 and vote until they're 18 and drive until they're 16, decide hormone treatment at, at an early age when obviously the rest of our laws say we don't really trust their decisions. Sorry, young people. We trust your decisions, but we're still not letting you drive until you're 16. 
And we're not going to let you take life-altering hormone replacement treatment therapy because you're going through a discovery process in your life. We just don't do that. So we, we recognize that there, there are things that we tend, we all tend to suppress truth to serve our own desires. And that's what Paul is saying here. So let, let me talk about just three arguments that I'll bring out of this passage that we just read. One is, and this is talking about the, the contrast of faith and science, and it's the design versus chance argument. To put it another way, I'm saying that everything that we see as, as a design, whether it's mountains, whether it's the ocean, whether it's rivers, whether it's a plant, whether it's an animal, whether it's the ecosystem, whether it's the law of gravity, whether it's centrifugal force, all of the design that we see around us, the way the sun comes up and goes down, perfect timing every single day. All of that indicates a designer. Design needs a designer. You change anything in our universe, even slightly, like the distance from, uh, of, of the earth to the sun. We, any closer we burn up, any further we freeze. You change gravity. Forbes did an article recently that said if gravity changed even by 5%, it would melt the surface of the earth and kill all life on earth. The point is, is that life in the universe is either random luck or by intelligent design. Paul's argument here in Romans is that God's attributes are clearly seen. Now you can say that it's not God, but Paul says they are clearly seen. He says that people know there's a God, yet they suppress that knowledge. And that's what so many so-called atheists do is they look for reasons not to believe. I'm looking for reasons to believe. Now here's Romans 1:19 says this, since what may be known about God is plain to them because God has made it plain to them. So we've got the design versus chance argument that I just can't put my head around the fact that you and I, the beauty of the human body, it's just by chance. No, it's by design. But there's another argument, the good versus evil argument. And this is an argument that I love. And you may say, this is not really science, Pastor. This is philosophy. Yet I bring it up because there are many who say they're scientists but present philosophy. This is the case with people like uh, Richard Dawkins and Sam Harris and Christopher Hitchens, Christopher Hitchens uh, who's passed, but they... They, they show up as scientists, but they present philosophy. And what they'll do is they'll try to disguise uh, their science by using philosophy and beat up on Christians and say that, uh, you know, I don't believe in a God and I can't accept a God that will allow all this injustice in the world to continue. Well, the question back is always, well, where do you get your sense of right and wrong? If you don't like the injustice in the world, where do you get your sense of right and wrong? I mean, why is murdering wrong? And why is stealing wrong? And why is rape wrong? And why is lying wrong? Well, you know, they'll say if, if God is good, why doesn't he stop all the evil and stop the injustice in the world? But here's the problem with that objection. When you say there's too much evil in the world, then you assume there's good. And when you assume there's good, you assume that there's a moral lawgiver, somebody who says this is good on the basis of which to differentiate between good and evil. 
Somebody said what's good and what's evil. But if you assume moral law, then you have to assume the moral lawgiver. But that's who the atheists are trying to disprove, not prove. So if there's no moral lawgiver, then there's no moral law. So if there's no moral law, then there's no good. And if there's no good, there's no evil. Somebody's got to be in charge of this thing. It can't be based. Listen, the question is asked, you know, well, what's the standard of morality? If you don't have belief in God, then there's no standard of morality beyond your own decision to decide what's right and wrong. And that's subjected from one person to the next. One culture's decision to love your neighbor. Well, what makes that better than another culture's decision to cannibalize their neighbor? Who says what's right and what's wrong? There has to be a moral uh, lawgiver. So without God, there is no true standard of morality. I'm not saying these aren't complex things, but the moral argument of what's right and what's wrong without God as the standard of morality, it really doesn't bear under its own weight. It just can't. Look at verse number 20, Romans 120. It says, for since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities... His eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made so that people are without excuse. For although they knew God, they neither glorified him as God nor gave thanks to him, but their thinking became futile and their foolish hearts were darkened. All right, I got to hurry up. Here's number three, the reality and responsibility argument, not reality versus, but the reality and responsibility. Anybody remember when you left home for the first time and you had this awakening of reality that all of a sudden now, oh, wait, I have to do my own laundry. I have to actually pay bills. I mean, before, you know, you just threw your dirty clothes in a hamper and they magically disappeared and reappeared clean and folded on your bed. Now you have to do that yourself. You have to buy groceries yourself. Food doesn't prepare itself. That's reality. This is What happens to atheists who want to be free of God? They're forced to embrace a philosophy of death that they don't really want. And here's what I mean by that. Most people who call themselves atheists, they don't really want atheism. They just simply want to escape the responsibility of God. So here's what it means to embrace atheism. Three quick little uh, realities or possibilities, and then I'll wrap up. Number one, the absence of a spirit. You embrace atheism, you're, you're saying there's no spirit. It means you're, you're, you're not really a person with consciousness and a spirit. You're just biology that's governed by the laws of physics. Christopher Hitchens said this when he was dying of cancer. The, the doctor said, Christopher, your body is responding to X, Y, or Z. He said, doctor, I don't have a body. I am a body. There's nothing more than the body. That's all there is. There's no spirit, no soul, no consciousness beyond the body. But we just don't believe that. I believe there is consciousness. I believe I have a spirit man that was made alive by Jesus Christ when I accepted him as my savior. But if you embrace atheism, then you got to embrace the absence of free will. This means that we have no free will. Everything that we do, everything that we say is just a result of our biology and chemistry. Some go as far to say that we really aren't responsible for our actions because it's all predetermined. But here's the problem with that. Determinism, predeterminism just supposes that we're just kind of machines that can't really rise above our programming, that we simply do what our DNA has programmed us to do. The fact that we can identify that means that we can rise above 
our programming. Stephen Hawking said this, who believed in determinism. He said this, he said, I've noticed that even those who claim everything is predestined and that we can do nothing to change it, look both ways before they cross the road. (laughs) Even he saw a problem with it. Musicians, you guys come back. Here's the last, the absence of value. This means that you and I inherently have no value. You're going to embrace atheism, life without God. You're saying we don't have any value. You might ascribe value to God, but we don't innately, inherently have value. To quote Richard Dawkins, he said this, all there is is DNA and we dance to its music. It means that your family doesn't have value. You might decide they have value, but if, if we aren't created in God's image, then we don't have inherent value. Then we're simply just piles of biology and chemistry with no more value than a stone. Here's the truth. Some have not walked away from God because you found something better to believe in. You walked away from God because you created an expectation of God who failed you because he didn't answer on demand when you asked. Those are the people I run into more often. They think that if everything else in my life is on demand, then God should be on demand as well. And those are the reasons that people have walked away from their faith. There's an expectation that was constructed in their own mind, and that's why they run into problems. People become atheists when, in reality, they simply simply lost faith in the version of God that they had created, not the God of the Bible. Because the God of the Bible hasn't promised that bad things would never happen. God of the Bible never promised us that we would always win. The God of the Bible hasn't promised us that that we would always be healthy and always be wealthy. Instead, Jesus, the son of God who loved us so much that he died for us, promised that he would be with us through every single season of life, every valley and every mountaintop. And he promised us that death was not the end. That's what he promised us. So the question always comes. If God is so loving and God is so good and God is so powerful, how come God did not heal my brother, my father, my mother, my son, my daughter? How come God didn't do this when I asked? Well, listen, Hebrews 11 speaks of many heroes of the faith, some who reached their desired destination and some who didn't. In fact, my own father died of cancer, acute leukemia, The day before he passed, he told my brothers and I, boys, we've asked God for healing. He said, no. He has something better in mind. So we could all argue, what's better than having my father here with me right now? What's better than having my husband or my wife here with me? What's better than having my son or my daughter? What's better than having my best friend? What's better than that? You know what I would argue? What's better than that? Being with Jesus. Being with Jesus. Now listen, that doesn't make the pain go away immediately, but it gives me faith in something that I can truly believe in. Some people make the mistake of thinking that our faith is just in something invisible, some blind faith. We have nothing to believe in. No, I have facts that I believe in that make me trust the God of the Bible, the God of the universe who sent his son to die for us. And maybe if you're willing to give the real Jesus a chance, you'll find out there's more because that's what Jesus promised. 
yes, in this world we'll have some troubles, but there's more. Death's not the end. He said, I go to prepare a place for you. There's so much more. Can I get an amen? Let's pray. Father, thank you for providing us more. For providing us an opportunity to live this life knowing that we're not alone, knowing that you're with us every step of the way. And I pray in the name of Jesus that each and every one of us here in this room today would recognize that even though we may face life with unanswered questions, we do not face life alone. You're with us every step of the way. We feel your presence. We feel the confidence that comes with knowing you're with us. So I'll rise today and I will rise in the morning with confidence that no matter what I'm facing, you're with me. And it will be good because everything you do is good. Encourage our hearts today. Strengthen our hearts. Strengthen our faith today. Strengthen the one today whose faith may be weak. A little shaky. Give them a strong faith life of all. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.